Welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast about the characters and the movies, and sometimes the television shows, that make us feel seen. Regular listeners to this show will know that this is a very special episode of Feeling Seen, and extremely special for me personally. As a screenwriter, Diablo Cody, also known in her normal life as Brooke, has a rare and fascinating career. She won an Oscar for her first produced screenplay, Juno. Her second was my dear and beloved Jennifer's Body. She created and produced the wonderful Tony Collette show, The United States of Terra. Old school Brie Larson fans know. Tig Notaro's One Mississippi and the Alanis Morissette stage show, Jagged Little Pill. I could keep listing every one of her credits, but suffice to say, I am one of the many people who are thrilled that she has written a new movie in theaters now that I really enjoyed, Lisa Frankenstein. We were keen to hear what character made Diablo feel seen, and she did not disappoint. It is Gen X icon Rayanne, Angela Chase's bad influence best friend on the groundbreaking 90s show My So-Called Life. If you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did, you're in for a big treat. So without further ado, my conversation with the Diablo Cody. I'm just so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really nice. Well, I guess the thing that I will start off, I guess, with formally would be, like, we'll get into the character that you brought, which I, like, had a small, like, internal scream when that happened. Uh, But how is it returning to the wild environs of the teen girl interiority for Lisa Frankenstein after sort of a hiatus from that for a period? Well, I love that word interiority. I am taking it. Isn't it it a great one? No, that's a wonderful word. It's good. Um, and I, honestly, I was delighted to be back in that world, in that space, because I honestly, obviously, I love writing about teenagers. <laughs> I just feel like there is something about that that um, underdeveloped frontal lobe mm-hmm. and that impulsivity and the just the depth and the strength of the emotions that people have in adolescence that just lends itself to cinema. Yeah. And uh, I just... Maybe maybe I'll eventually be in my teenage boy era. <laughs> I, ha- I have three sons. You're raising. You're going to be raising many of them. Yeah, I have it. I already have one. My eldest is 13. So it's like, Whoa. but I, I just keep going back to the girls. You uh-huh. know, I'm just. I think I'm still processing and working through stuff that happened to me when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a perfect endpoint to the character that you selected for today. A Gen X icon, a legend in her time, Rayanne from My So-Called Life <laughs> is your yeah. representative character, and let's unpack that. Was this a long process of consideration, or did you know quickly that this was who you wanted to go with? I answered immediately. Um, <laughs> there was I, – I knew immediately. because So a few years ago – a few. It was probably like 10 years. Mm. There was a, an Instagram trend of – Describe yourself in three fictional characters. Mm-hmm. And you and at the time I chose Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. <laughs> Strong. Um, Homer Simpson, who I actually I that is not like me trying to be cute or funny. Like I mm-hmm. generally I genuinely relate to Homer Simpson mm-hmm. in so many ways. And Rayanne Graff from my so-called life. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna go with Rayanne today. Mm-hmm. So I started hanging out with Rayanne Graff just for fun. Just because it seemed like if I didn't, I would die or something. Things were getting to me. Just how people are. How they always expect you to be a certain way. Even your best friend. I just... It, she was, like, kind of feral. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, she was very, um, you know, spontaneous always like bursting into song kind of like mm-hmm. just this shambolic figure in Angela's <laughs> life well I don't have anything to wear to a place like that well I'll lend you something you have to look tough somebody once set fire to my hair at Let's Bowl and that was me that was me in high school like the Rayanne who's just like hanging around your locker you know saying the quiet part loud <laughs> but the thing I related to most is like a lot of the parents didn't want Rayanne around. And yeah. like I I had friends who specifically were not allowed to hang out with me. And I always felt totally misunderstood because I really wasn't a big troublemaker. Uh-huh. I think I just kind of presented as one. And I think Rayanne has that same issue. 
I I surprisingly relate to that aspect because I am a sober individual, like like not like on the wagon. Like I've just I've never drank, I've never done drugs. Uh, I'm a pan romantic gray sexual person. Sex did not become a part of my life until extremely recently. I'm 38 years old. I was the straightest arrow you could imagine. Like good student, happy kid. But my best friend at the end of high school was a very evangelical Christian, and her parents were very conservative. And I was actually not allowed at the beginning of our friendship to stay over at her house because I was a bad influence. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And she was probably up to more than you. I can guarantee you that whatever yeah. those kids were getting up to at fellowship and yeah. camp. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Those those youth groups are so horny. <laughs> yeah minefields of repression but i i was yeah. i was once like like removed like basically removed from the house she tried to have me to sleep over like all it was like eight girls there and her dad comes in and pulls her aside and is like jordan can't stay the night yeah and we and were thinking all- like we thought we would like pull a fast one on him like if i was there long enough like he'd have to give in he did not give in the thing was rayanne if, i mean granted it was a network show so they could only go too far but it it wasn't freaking euphoria she was just like <laughs> she had a flask occasionally okay yes. who didn't <laughs> Like I, I just it, it. I never, I never fully understood why Angela's parents were so put off by Rayanne, and Rayanne had that like wacky mom. I don't know. Yeah. That's just such a great show. I finally faced the truth. The only really great foods are appetizers and desserts. So why bother eating anything else? Amber, you're so up, even though you're surrounded by negativity. <laughs> She's an X-ray technician. It's not as glamorous as it sounds. What can I tell you, sweet cakes? Life was created to be lived. <laughs> Give me. So, what'd you wear at your welcome at Angela's house? No, see, my mom's not that strict. Sometimes she... You don't have to explain. See this card? That's the world. This is the daughter who hides her feelings behind, like, a mask. That's her, big time. But I- I'm the daughter. <laughs> yeah, but so is she. <clears throat> I, I was rewatching the pilot last night, and it was like, you know, her mom's kind of reacting to Rayanne and Ricky. And, of course, Ricky's a whole thing for them. Oh, Ricky. Oh, my God. But she's like, oh, that rude girl, Rayanne. And and Angel's like, she wasn't rude. She, her mom goes, she ate my cheese. It's like, that's what you've got? That's what <laughs> yeah. you got? She, you are looking for reasons at this point, Mom. Exactly. Rayanne invited me to sleep over her house tonight. I am allowed to watch that, right? That girl from the other day? That rude girl? She wasn't rude. She finished my cheese. I had this brand new brick of cheese. She devoured it. Dad. I'm allowed to. You know, right? I have met this Rayanne exactly once. I do not know her. I do not know her parents. What? You never uh, spent a night at a friend's house? My parents knew my friends. Mom, right? Yes, yes. You may watch them. Mom, offer oh, my cheese. Well, and that was I the interesting thing about like I'm so glad you brought up Euphoria because I my my wife is younger than me, so I'm watching it with her and her friend. And I was like, you guys, you need to know that before Euphoria, there was my so-called life. And there was before Rue, there was Rayanne. Yes. That's a great comparison. I mean, what fascinated me about that is that Rayanne that formerly was the trappings of a supporting character to in the service of an Angela Chase who was more mild, who more my so-called Angela Chase. And yeah. now that has evolved to like where we are with sort of the norms and tastes of the 2020s. Rue is now the main character. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's like it, granted my kids are growing up in L.A., but yeah, like I would say – they're definitely uh, more sophisticated and exposed to a lot more than I was. Well, and as a as a writer, as somebody who's making fictional figures, so like, how is the shift to desiring a Rue at the center of a story as opposed to having sort of like her mess need to relegate her into a sideline sort of level? I don't think I've really had the opportunity to do that yet. Mm, because okay. if you think about it, I mean, I don't think I've had a protagonist yet. With weirdly, maybe the exception of Ricky from Ricky and the Flash, who was mm-hmm. really like um, making like risky, nonconformist life choices. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think Lisa, for instance, and Lisa Frankenstein. I mean, mm-hmm. she's she's her rebellion is, you know, sneaking out to see the cure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is something I I could personally relate to. You know, but she's um. Yeah, I mean, her vice is, like, (laughs) 
<laughs> this dead man. Yeah, her vice is time. Her time that she spends intimately in the cemetery with a gravestone until that gravestone yes, exactly. becomes a man. Yes, yes. You know, you spend enough time at a hot guy's grave, he he might come back. <laughs> Yeah, be be careful what you wish for. Uh, and so what uh, a thing that like sort of watching the the thread through time of of like a Jennifer's body teen story in 2009 and then one coming into Lisa and Frankenstein now, what I really kept an eye on when I was watching the movie was the relationship with sort of like the 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 two females at the center of it. In the case of Lisa, it's her and her new stepsister and obviously Jennifer, it's Needy and Jennifer, and it seemed like I don't know if it was like a thing that was like in, intended in its evolution, but it seemed like there was more room for kindness between the sort of primary female relationship in the story now compared to in the 2000s. And I wanted to hear from you about that. Okay, so I honestly think the most important relationship in this movie is between Lisa and her stepsister Taffy. I loved it. Thank you. And it was that was really important to me. You know, those girl girl relationships and Taffy, I think, is so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. She's she's the only person who's really trying to help Lisa and and embracing her and saying, I want mm-hmm. you to be my sister. I want you to meet my friends. Like, mm-hmm. come to the party. And it's <laughs> so funny because Lisa is so honestly jealous and so mm-hmm. also just poisoned by the culture to believe that Taffy is the enemy mm-hmm. because she, just because she's popular mm-hmm. <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, and Lisa's Lisa has a chip on her shoulder, as did I at that age, mm-hmm. and is just you know has convinced herself that that Taffy's actually the opposition. Mm-hmm. And even though the culture has pitted them against each other, like Taffy's not part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think at the end, you know, I, it, there there's a moment where Lisa acknowledges that she loves Taffy mm-hmm. and that she misjudged her, and like that had to be in there. Mm-hmm. That was really important to Zelda. And important to me as well, because, you know, that's kind of the realest relationship that there is. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, in terms of what you're allowed to do as a creator, does it feel like there is more of an allowance for or perhaps an active desire for that it like reinforcement of a kindness and a validity of the centrality of a female relationship now as compared to when you were first writing that earlier in your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, from the beginning, like, I wanted to show kindness between women because, like, in Juno, for instance, mm-hmm. which was the first movie I ever wrote. Way to come out swinging. Christ. Congratulations on no, your Oscar. No, thank you. <laughs> you know, Juno is, you know, her her best friend Leah is this is a popular cheerleader. Yeah. And Juno is, you know, obviously not really that type of person. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to show that, like, that they could still be besties. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to a lot of the sort of teen movie click narratives. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you I'm pregnant and you're acting shockingly cavalier. Is this for real? Like, for real, for real? Unfortunately, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. Fuget Thailand. There we go. That was kind of the emotion that I was searching for on the first take. So are you going to go to Havenbrook or women now? Because you know you need a note from your parents for Havenbrook. Yeah, I, I know. Um, no, I'm going to go to uh, women now just because they help out women now. Hey, do you want me to call for you? Because I called for Becky last year. And then with Jennifer and Needy, like, I mean, that was like a queer relationship. But we yeah. weren't allowed to do that at the time. Mm-hmm. It's It's so crazy to think if we were making that movie now you know, what we could do. Uh-huh. And, but at the time it was like maybe one, you know, titillating brief kiss mm-hmm. that will excite the male audience mm-hmm. for this movie, which I can't tell you how many conversations that we had that were, we had with the studio behind the scenes about, we have to drive men to this movie. <laughs> It was so frustrating. Yeah, Karin recounting the uh, like the the notes on the trailer like needs more Megan Fox hot. Yeah. Oh, I mean that was that was it. We we had a card from the focus group when we screened that movie. One guy just wrote needs more boobs on the <laughs> card, and I still have it because it was like this says it all, doesn't it? Like <laughs> it was it was tough. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I always try to service those relationships. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that will. And obviously, like with like Rayanne is kind of like a foundational text here. Like, obviously, Angela spends the season of my so-called life pining for the Jordan Catalano. But like the most driving central relationship in her life, it really feels like it is Rayanne. Like Rayanne dyes her hair red. Like Rayanne is sort of the new organizing principle around which she builds her social life, much, you know, at the expense of Sharon, old friend Sharon, unfortunately. And, you know, was that kind of always something you cottoned to when you were starting to watch things and, like, make memories around, like, film and television. Like, clearly this seems to be a sort of, like, original cell of your creation. Like, these these female these female companionships and taking it even to a movie like Tully, which I consider almost, like, a queer narrative when I watch it because there's such intimacy between queer icon Mackenzie Davis and Charlize Theron. Well, I personally think that Rayanne was in love with Angela. Yeah. I think that's why Rayanne slept with Jordan. No, no, I don't hate you. I mean, I guess I I can certainly understand how Angela feels. I've never really hurt somebody this bad before. It's hard to believe. I mean, but I guess you can't really hurt someone this bad and... Unless you really matter to him. Please don't tell her I was here. And that was like her way of having like secondhand intimacy with Angela. But Mm -hmm. that's just me being crazy. (laughs) Um, That's that is how I interpret that show. I just feel like even just the the show opening with Rayanne dyeing her hair Mm -hmm. like that's intimacy Mm -hmm. in United States of Terror. I remember a scene where Charmaine was washing Tara's hair. And that was like a really important scene for me, this idea of these two women together just caring for each other. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, yeah, I just, it is. It's something that I keep coming back to. And I hadn't even thought about it with Tully because when I watch that movie, I honestly think of it as being the protagonist alone because right she is yeah because you're in like, you know like you're you're the inside track with that information yeah right like i know it's it's, it's it, there was no way to conceal the twist from myself <laughs> but um it was you're right like it's it's the conversations that marlo and tully have in that movie are actually kind of not unlike the lisa and creature mm-hmm. conversations <laughs> because it's like Tully just, or excuse me, Marlo just getting to like really speak candidly about and, and not being judged. No, I let allow me to affirm for you in this that watching, I remember watching Tully and feeling like, like this, I, I was waiting for them to not knowing the twist, obviously, till I was supposed to. I was waiting for them to like, I was like, are they going to run off together? Like this, this beautiful <laughs> relationship at the center of this movie. And obviously that's like, yeah, Mackenzie Davis, uh, such a such an incredible curative instinct towards characters that like push the boundaries of like hetero heterosexual but like homo affectionate like queering of the friendship space and to see like Charlize Theron in her in those moments like there was such like a moving tenderness that to me that movie is absolutely a queer film thank you so much that's which is really fun because it's buried against the heteronormativity of like the birth experience and like the father and the mother and the child yeah no you're right I mean that's I love that I love that interpretation I mean, in that, like, the surrendering of your work out into the world, like, suddenly it's like, okay, I guess this belongs to how everybody perceived it while I'm, like, sitting in the driver's seat knowing everything that's about to happen. Like, I guess I'm just going to give this to everybody to decide. Does that still feel like as vulnerable of a thing as I feel like it could have maybe earlier in your career? Or is that still every time kind of like, well, here I go again? You know, I... I I think I enjoy the, the process of being read. Like mm-hmm. I like when the movie becomes a text and people have different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, no, honestly, I've relinquishing control has always been a special skill of mine. Um, <laughs> I have a lot That's of, you know, enough. writer friends who don't like working with directors, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ultimate goal is to direct their own stuff so that mm-hmm. they can evade that relationship and for me it's the opposite mm-hmm. like when i finish a script that i am so excited to go out to directors mm-hmm. and to find a teammate because for me 
so much of the fun is being able to kind of to first put my trust in the director and then to put my trust in the audience mm-hmm. and to to see what people come up with. I like it. Do you feel like has has that trust generally worked out for you like more times than you thought it would? Like, did you feel like when you handed the keys over that it that the car got driven kind of like generally how you like hoped it would each time or at least how you like kind of assessed it at a time? Uh, yes. And okay. I feel like I feel like that is such an unusual experience. Yeah. Um, but I have just I can't tell you how I have really hit the Powerball with directors in terms of luck. I you mean, have worked I, with incredible filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with Craig Gillespie. I've worked with Jason Reitman mm-hmm. three times. I've worked with Karin. I worked with Jonathan Demi. And now to work with Zelda on her debut. I mean, it's, I've yeah, I have been really lucky. So I I cannot complain. I really can't think of a time where I've thought, you know, wow, this is like, this is not what I envisioned mm-hmm. or this is not what I wanted. It's time for a quick break, but I'll be back shortly with more Diablo Cody. Then I'll have one quick thing before I go about another female-fronted film in theaters right now, because I know you're dying to hear my thoughts on Madam Web. Stick around at the end to find out. My name's Doug Duguay, and I'm here to talk about my podcast in the middle of the one you're listening to. It's called Valley Heat, and it's about my neighborhood, the Burbank Rancho Equestrian District, the center of the world when it comes to foosball, frisbee golf, and high-speed freeway roller skating. And there's been a Jaguar parked outside on my curb for 10 months. I have no idea who owns it. I have a feeling it's related to the drug drop that was happening in my garbage can a little over a year ago. And if this has been a boring commercial, imagine 45 minutes of it. Okay, Valley Heat, it's on every month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Check it out, but honestly, skip it. These are the These chronicles, are the chronicles of the Rancho Equestrian District, 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 and drift off to sleep. For instance, we have the remarkable Neil Gaiman. I'd always had a vague interest in live culture, food preparation. Sleeping with Celebrities, hosted by me, John Moe, on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Night-night. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm talking with Diablo Cody, whose latest screenplay is the darkly comedic, 80s-inspired Lisa Frankenstein. Let's get right back into it. I I was thinking about, like, when I was watching the pilot of My So-Called Life last night, like, watching that show with young people is very interesting because the pacing and the expectation of narrative kind of consequence is just so different than now. Like in a oh, in yeah. a world where euphoria exists. Like the, there I love the episode summaries for my so-called life on Hulu cuz one of them's like Patty's dad's business gets audited. I was like nobody's getting held hostage. Nobody's going to nobody's getting held at gunpoint here. Nobody's going to run through the night with a $50,000 bag of drugs wondering what to do with it. Patty's dad's business gets it's, audited. It's audited. That's the thing like I'm telling you though that's the market has determined that that, which yeah. is unfortunate. You know, I I tend to write more of the Patty's dad gets audited type <laughs> stories. And when I go and I pitch that to Netflix or to Hulu, I'll just say there's a reason why I don't have a show on Netflix or Hulu right now, because <laughs> they want super plotted, bingeable, story heavy shows. Yeah. And I am training myself to write that stuff because I need to keep up with, you know, my industry right but it, that's not my instinct mm-hmm. like i i like slow stories uh-huh the, yeah i was like i was like i'm watching like norwegian slow tv right now watching my so-called yes. life and it felt really good like just like the like truly the pilot of the show is just and you know the episodes come around and, like you kind of get like that issue like very special episode sort of feel that you got in tv back then where like rayan's drinking has gone out of control and like this is the episode where we're going to deal with it but unless we have a deal with it episode we are truly just like slice of lifing our way through who these people are their sophomore year of high school 
Exactly. And the deal with it episodes were mandated by the networks. Right. Like on 90210, there was an episode where Brenda had sex with Dylan. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I have to bring literally everything back to 90210 always. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, but it, there was an episode where Brenda had sex with Dylan. You yep, know, the two, I remember. 18 characters. And then the network made them write an episode where Brenda has a pregnancy scare mm -hmm. and then tells Dylan, I'm not ready for this level of responsibility. We, we're never sleeping together again. Yeah. Like, to basically erase the decision that she made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. And they they had no choice. So I'm guessing, like, oh, Rayanne has a drinking problem was, like, 100% ABC uh -huh. sticking their fingers into the product. Well, yeah. So that, like, does that then become, like, based on your experience, does that kind of become a note that follows, like, okay, Rayanne is partying a lot. Rayanne is doing drugs and drinking. We need to have a consequence episode because we can't just have her out here living like that. Exactly. In fact, I remember at the time there was a there was a little bit of controversy around the fact that in the pilot, Angela sneaks out, I believe, and does not get caught. No. And I remember in the initial reviews of the show, people being astonished that there was no consequence for her, that it didn't end the way shows usually ended back then uh -huh. with the parents giving a talk with, like, the touching music playing in the background. Yeah. No, the, she she politely, like, asks – the she's talking about the diary of Anne Frank with the police officer in the car who brings her home after they go to a rave yeah. and don't make it in. She's like, can you not walk me to the door? Don't do this again. You got that? Could you please not come to my door? And then he, like, calls her friend over who's, like, being a weirdo in the tree, like, drawing and listening to music. Brian. Gen X, man. <laughs> and Brian, yeah. And so he comes down. And, as and in fact, as Brian is, like, kind of walking her home, she sees her dad on the street talking to another girl. So instead of Angela being punished for what she's done, she he, she catches her dad maybe philandering. Yeah. Which did they – I know eventually they sort of revisited the Graham philandering storyline. It, like, not in the way that they make it kind of like they set it up in that episode. Like, no, they oh, this is going to define the season. I can spot a network note a mile away. <laughs> that was 100%. We are not going to be able to get people to tune into episode two unless you set up some kind of mystery. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll make it that maybe the dad is cheating. And then, you know, Winnie Holtzman probably said, okay, we're never going back to that. But I'll put it in the pilot. Yeah, we put a big pin in that. We put a, Let's put a yeah, season two in pin in that. <laughs> and then R.I.P. My So-Called Life. Uh-huh. Well, and, and like, yeah, you guys, and, and think of, you know, guys, think of a time when, you know, shows do shows get canceled unjustly now in the most batshit of ways. But think of a time when you couldn't just pray for another network to pick it up. When it was gone, it was gone. It, it that The networks are just absolutely brutal. I mean, just the amount of pilots I've written that are just permanently shelved. A graveyard. I think yeah. that is one of the things that has been most shocking to me as I've gotten to understand this industry more. I remember one day I just had a realization where I was like, guys, do you realize that more things don't get made than do get made in this industry? I inside. Oh, yeah. I'm like, one, one percent get made. I was like, holy, wait, what about the graveyard of all the unmade things? There's so many perfectly good things that nobody's making. <laughs> If you look at the blacklist every year, it's a hundred things long. Yeah, and uh, most of those movies, which are considered to be the best scripts yeah. in Hollywood, are, do not get made. So yeah, it's uh, it's a tough tough gig. I one of my in reading interviews leading up to this with you, one of my favorite things that you said, I think it was from a, a Vulture interview a number of years ago now when you were working on the uh, Alanis Morissette musical. Um, you said that like you had. The cl you got the classic Hollywood experience and how you went from, like, blogging to getting, uh, you know, the book and then getting, the, you know, becoming a screenwriter in Juno. You had the classic Hollywood experience at the last time that it was possible to have that experience. And I wanted to hear from you about what is different now that, like, classic Hollywood experience that just doesn't feel available to people anymore in the way that you feel like you kind of got in right as the door was closing. Well, I actually just saw Ben Affleck talking about this. Mm. Uh, a clip that was going viral, uh, he's talking about, and the word he used was diffuse to describe how what has happened to culture. He was saying oh, yeah. that he feels like he feels like Jennifer Lopez, his wife, he's like, she's kind of last of the breed of like 
movie stars. Mm-hmm. You're not True. really going to see it anymore because people, there's so much content and people's interests have become so splintered mm-hmm. that we don't all come together and agree that one person is famous. Mm-hmm. It's more mm-hmm. like this person is famous in my corner of the internet. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, it was sort of the last, the 2000s, it was kind of like the last moment before social media dominated everything. I'm so glad that the monoculture went out just in the absolute yeah. drain catch. that's the word. In the absolute drain catch of the t- my beloved 2000s, just like a, a hell hellish nihilism of yes. like homo nationalism that was that was the g- final shot of the monoculture <laughs> yeah i mean I, that i feel like i was in the twilight years of the monoculture mm-hmm. was when i emerged um and it things just yeah they do feel different now like you know the year that we went to the oscars like people were watching the oscars i don't know if they are anymore right <laughs> I think much to the chagrin of the Oscars, they are not. Well, it's just, it is. It's kind of like there's so much other stuff. Like, honestly, it's – I shouldn't say this. I was just going to say it's probably more entertaining to spend three hours scrolling TikTok than to watch, the, like, a slow pageant. The, <laughs> like, it, it is. It's like a It's like a pageant. At the peak of Twitter, that two-screen – that two screen experience I thought was such a value add to that time because it really like at the the peak of Twitter being fun I like which yeah. for me was like even like three four years ago like I had a wonderful time on that service before it just eh. when it really did feel like a town square though because who better to watch a slow pageant with than a million different people making jokes at the same time that was fun but now. It's like, what if I just one screen it and I don't include the slow pageant, but I just watch the reactions to it? I have to admit, there have been recent award shows where I've literally just searched them on TikTok for the necessary clips instead of just watching. Oh, I recently had a full, like, break, like, dissociative break when I was like, the Emmys are, like, right now. Like, you're not you're not previewing the Emmys next Sunday. You're telling me the Emmys are happening right now? Had no idea. Yeah. And I'm in this. I'm in this career of media and watching. And yet. I know. I'm not on top of it either. So, it, yeah, it was, uh, it's a, it is definitely, like, a, a different world. Well, and, and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up the monoculture aspect of it, actually, because I wanted to ask about like, you know, that experience that like old timey water cooler experience of like watching my so-called life. And when you're like clicking with Rayanne, it's because these are the options that we have to experience. And you like even if even if not everybody, you know, is watching my so-called life. Enough of the teen population that is being offered this content, who it is built specifically for, is that there can be a shocking crossover of shared conversation that you could have with Gen Xers even now about, like, oh, Rayanne, you know, and not be like, well, they grew up in, like, Austin, where this scene is big and the XYZ factor happened. No, you just know that my so-called life happened at the same time as them. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Speaking of, like, you know, Gen Z and younger people being able to sort of rediscover the mm-hmm. stuff that I grew up watching. It's 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 super fun. And it's also hilarious because some of it, I think, like, like you truly had to be there. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, like yeah. I can see why some of it doesn't land anymore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you want to have sex with who? Who? Jordan. Catalano. I'm not gonna tell anyone, just admit it. I just like how he's always leaning against stuff. He leans great. Well, either sex or a conversation, ideally both. Well, you have to come to Tino's tomorrow night. Angela, Jordan Catalan. always knows who's going to be there. When you started your writing career, like, you have, like, you you have your, like, your character, like, little, like, like you said, like, your Instagram prompts, and there's, um, there's a Rayanne graph in there, obviously. How does the, like, how does the Homer Simpson factor in? I feel like I can't leave that behind in this conversation without, without asking at least a little more about it. 
Because I really feel like while I am proud of my achievements, Mm -hmm. I do feel like ultimately that I bumbled into all of this. And it's not good bumbling. It's not. Thank you. It's not not (laughs) imposter syndrome, though. It's like I'm an actual imposter. Like there is a famous episode of The Simpsons where Homer has this coworker named Frank Grimes, Mm -hmm. who's like this like super hardworking, beleaguered guy. And he's Mm -hmm. always like he's like he eventually just loses it on Homer. And he's like, how do you have all this? Yeah. And this is when I was on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, and here's a picture of me in outer space. You. Went into outer space. You. Sure. You've never been? Would you like to see my Grammy Award? No, I wouldn't. God, I've had to work hard every day of my life. And what do I have to show for it? This briefcase and this haircut. And what do you have to show for your lifetime of sloth and ignorance? What? Everything! A dream house, two cars, a beautiful wife, a son who owns a factory, fancy clothes, and lobsters for dinner! And do you deserve any of it? No! (gasps) What are you saying? You know, and then Homer's just like, I don't know. And, like, that's how I feel, where I'm just like, I am surrounded by people who are incredibly talented, super ambitious, which I've never (laughs) been. Like, I am not, I do not really grind. Like, I am like... (laughs) Kind of just trying to do what I need to do. Uh-huh. But I'm not like I'm just I, I'm not as intense as a lot of people in this business. Mm-hmm. So I just always feel like, what am I doing here? Like it's just so strange to be kind of a type B, like passenger <laughs> princess type. Uh-huh. In a business that's mostly you know, most of the women in this business are like insane driven girl bosses. Yeah. Who will like stop at nothing to get ahead and me I'm just like I don't un- I don't understand how I've managed to hang on to the saddle because I'm just I'm like sitting at the power plant like flipping <laughs> a switch every couple hours. Do you fi- have you had to cosplay girl bossery or have you like Yes. Oh, okay. I've had to pretend okay. so many times I'm that kind of person just to make the team that I'm working with feel confident because <laughs> I don't want them to know. Yeah. But I like, but like eventually the mask slips. Like I think after a few years working on Jagged Little Pill on Broadway, I think people realize like, oh, Brooke is just like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's doing either. Um, so, but, you know, I do try to, I try to keep the performance going as long as I can. Do you feel like, because because I feel like, like, obviously the name Diablo Cody, like it carries with it, like it conjures, it conjures bad bitchness, like ab, just sort <laughs> of like. Which is it, funny. Yeah, just in its, in its, in its sonorousness, like Diablo Cody sounds like a bad bitch. And is there, was there ever, I mean, was it ever a possibility or was there a time where you were like, I'm gonna retire that one and it's gonna I be really, Brooke. I thought about it. I mm. really thought about it. And Jonathan Demi who I miss very much. He's no longer mm-hmm. with us, but he he tried to convince me around 2014. He was like, it's time. He's like, I yeah. love Brooke. People will love Brooke. You should just be Brooke. And I, I said, I said, oh, you know what? I actually, this is so Homer Simpson to me. I think I actually looked into the process and it was going to be so annoying with the Writers Guild oh. and like my health insurance and all this shit that I was just mm-hmm. like, you know what? <laughs> I don't feel like doing this. <laughs> I'll just be Diablo Cody forever. (laughs) Yeah, it was going to actually be like a process. So I was like, yeah, no, I don't like paperwork. Let's just, we'll we'll stick with this. Do like when, do you find that like when you encounter the rise and grind personality, which is so much of sort of like hustle culture and like a first one on set last week, like that kind of just, you know, that, that, you know, like. Yeah, so not me. I sleep for the last minute every single day of my life. (laughs) I will never get up a minute earlier than I need to. Has that helped with a perspective on dealing with an industry that is sort of like insanely oriented in the opposite way of the pendulum? Or does it like, has that been a benefit to you? Or do you find yourself punching against a sort of liability aspect of that? Because what what is demanded of you? Here's what's been great about it is it helps me navigate failure because I'm, you know, failure is inevitable in this business. You're going to get the call many times. They're not picking up the show. Uh They're not making the movie. Um, the movie didn't open. The movie didn't perform well. I, I've had, I fielded many of those calls. And because I am kind of an inherently Zen person mm-hmm. who just kind of goes with it, I, I think that's what's actually enabled me to have longevity. Mm. Because the people who are very, very intense and very ambitious and stake all of their self-worth on success, mm-hmm. 
it'll kill them if something yeah. flops. Yeah. Like they, it, there are people who are driven to extremely dark places by career failures. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm just like, I try not to get carried away in either direction. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a liability, yeah, big time. Like there's a reason why. I mean, I've been in this business 20 years and you don't see me running a TV show. Right. And I, I can just be honest with you. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Like a room full of people? Absolutely not. <laughs> but like, I, I've read you talk about a movie. I tried it once. I was like, oh my god, there's too many people here. Like I've read because like you've obviously created television shows again with Mississippi, yeah. United States of Terra. Like, and I've I've read you talking about how like you uh, you've talked about like TV of like I wish I could great like I want to make a water cooler show. Like I want I want to make a succession kind of thing. Like, does you, that clash with like your natural state of being? That kind of desire. Yeah, it does because I want to do it and you don't see me doing it. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I have the mojo to make succession. Mm-hmm. You know, I but I'd love to because it'd mm-hmm. be so fun and gratifying to have the whole world talking about your show. Mm-hmm. But I yeah, like I don't know if I have um if I have it in me. I, I'm gonna keep trying. Uh-huh. Have you like do you feel yet like you are because I feel like Jennifer's body ahead of the game. I feel like a movie like Young Adult also honestly ahead because like we weren't quite doing that movie's dark and we weren't quite doing dark in our protagonists the way that movie was when it came out. Do you feel like now your sort of orientation around your explorations of like central female narratives, do you feel like it is more in line now with the mores of the industry or do you feel like? Absolutely. Okay. Thank God. Yeah, because I can tell you when I got started back in the day, I mean, I I was told so many times, like, your female characters have to be likable. It's really important. Yeah. Like, that's people do not like bitches. They don't want to watch unlikable women. And then all of a sudden, around 2016, I literally start getting phone calls from my agent where it's like, Showtime is looking for an unlikable female protagonist do you have any ideas <laughs> hbo really wants to go into the unlikable space like you know, like <laughs> suddenly people want space. it for real for some, now now it's like my phone is ringing off the hook from people who want bitches and it's like that's because because they learn that like people actually do like complicated characters yeah. you know of either gender and i think maybe the maybe the boomer men who are driving the whole no unlikable woman thing are dying or something i don't know <laughs> but it's like because yeah I, I it was older men and older women to be honest with you because when we tested ricky and the flash it was actually the women who were toughest on that character honestly that makes sense to me that there there feels like a real sort of internalized sense of how dare she that could oh, come from women so many older women were just furious they were like yeah no you don't you know ignore your kids because you want to be in a band <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, why not? <laughs> okay, well, I guess I, I have to come to my concluding point with you, which I guess would be in in lieu of like that traditional ladder of like ambition, 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 ambition. And you being like, I directed once. Don't put me back in that chair again. What is it? I, I would suppose that it has to be obviously what your interests and your passions are that drive you. So go, going from like like odd, odd, intense teens in odd, intense situations through like odd, intense adulthood in those odd, intense situations and then sort of back to teens. What is your passion driving you toward as your own kids enter being teens and you enter being even more of adult? And where does that settle in for like what you're really excited to make as perhaps the mores of the industry have caught up to what you do finally? I mean, and that is exciting for me. Like, I keep thinking, like, okay, people love Jennifer's body now. Maybe this is my moment. Like, maybe this is where I need to become more of the rise and grind person and take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. But and my kids are getting older, which is also like coincides nicely with that because uh, honestly, raising them is most of my life. Yeah, three um, is a lot. Three is a so lot. It is a lot, and it's it's funny because I, I kind of thought it would get easier when they got older because there's not as much hands-on active parenting that I need to do. Mm-hmm. But now I'm managing three personalities and, <laughs> you know, three people who need therapy because we all do. And you're not so, trying to be in writer's room. So look at that. No. And so I'm like, okay, how do I keep doing this and maybe even level up while attending to my responsibilities? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't – honestly, I have no, no idea, Jordan. I'm like – it's a it's a weird place for me, 
but I've seen a lot of women in this industry bloom at like 45, 50. Uh So you never know. Well, listen, if we haven't gotten close to your fully form unleashed yet, I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. I mean, we'll see. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing it with us. Diablo Cody. Thank you. Brooke Brooke to to the ones who know her. um, And perhaps, you know, one day when the government paperwork is not so foreboding, perhaps to the rest of us as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much to, God, it's insane to say this. Thank you so much to Diablo Cody for being here. Um, and if you want to relive the experience of my so-called life, which truly feels like like Norwegian slow television in this TikTok age of media, it is actually streaming on Hulu and a few other services. That one season wonder inside uh, the theater of the mind of Angela Chase. And you can check your local listings for Lisa Frankenstein, which just hit theaters in the U.S. this past weekend. And it's an excellent time. It's an excellent time. Um, it looks great. It's fun. Her Frank, like Dr. Frankenstein machine of life giving is a tanning bed. So that's the tongue in cheek that we're working with here. Go see Lisa Frankenstein. If you're an A-lister like me, an AMCA lister, just get out there. Grab friends and grab your entourage and go. How do you like that plug, everybody? Um, speaking of A-list, honestly, one quick thing before I go. Honestly, uh, if you have a movie subscription service to any theater, any theater Spend one of those reservations uh, included in your price of subscription on Madam Web. You guys, I bet you didn't think you were going to hear, or maybe you did. Maybe you thought exactly that you would hear an endorsement from Madam Web on this particular podcast. A thing I don't talk about much, but that is extremely true of me, is that I am a stan of Dakota Johnson. Underrated comedic actor, Dakota Johnson. Uh, Excellent, uh, aloof dramatic actress of many a Luca Guadagnino picture, Dakota Johnson. Uh, Oddly, the posters for this movie are so bad. There's, I get it that if you've walked by that and been like, absolutely no, not never. Like, clearly, whoever is putting this movie out cares about it so little that they would let a poster look this way. Um, but Dakota Johnson, you might be like, what is she doing in a superhero movie? Her her thing is to, like, give absolute mid-range. And I find her incredibly compelling, charismatic, sexy, um, wonderful, all of the above. But there there is something about her detachment um, in her, like, from, I don't know, there's something about it that works perfectly in a superhero context where that thing where somebody has, like, the extraordinary pivot event happen to them and suddenly they're thrust into a world of, like, powers and looking, being able to see the future and it's crazy. There's something about her handling of that shocking turn of events as just, like, a normal person. Her character's a paramedic in New York City. Um that feels so actually authentic to what a person would do if they were confronted with these insane scenarios. Um, so I think, strangely, she they nailed it. If you're if you were dubious about whether or not Dakota Johnson in a blockbuster role like this was something you wanted to see, I think it is something you want to see if you have taste. And this movie, surprise guys, it's a period piece. It's set in two thousand and three, so it kind of like. You don't really have to worry about any of the superhero mythology to start watching it because it's not a world where superhero is commonplace. Like they there's like a wish app. Spider-Man is the villain in this movie. And at one point, one of the the young characters remarks like, you know, he can crawl on walls. Like, how is it possible for a person to do that? These are not people who know who Thor is. These are not people who know who Spider-Man in any of his incarnations is. This is like a whole new blank slate. The only superheroes we are talking about in this world are Madam Web and the ones associated with her. And... There's like an as as a 2003 period piece, there's an entire scene that revolves around Britney Spears is toxic and becomes in the most on the nose way that is positively hilarious. There is um, you have like Sydney Sweeney in a strawberry blonde wig playing like a 16 year old as somebody who is like giving great performance on Euphoria, but like 
past the point of credibly believing she's a 16-year-old in Euphoria, the high school show that she's been on. You Celeste O'Connor giving a great turn as a sassy teenager. Like, you have a wonderful young ensemble cast. Uh, Zosha Mamet, guys, is in this movie as a hacker. Zosha Mamet plays a hacker in this movie. This movie is... I don't know if it's camp, because as me and the filmmaker Sam Weidman say, um, everyone knows that camp doesn't exist. But if it does exist, it's Madam Web. C- camp isn't real, but if it was real, I think it, w- it might be Madam Web. And that's me saying that with a complete misunderstanding of what camp means, because um, no- nobody knows what it means. Uh, somebody does, but it's not me. But yeah, just Madam Web, go, it's fun. I'm going to, it's, I'm on Letterboxd now, guys. I'm on Letterboxd now. This is not a place where I'll be going like Demi Adejigbe style and becoming like a phenom of the reviewing landscape. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put stars behind things and mark that I've watched them. But every once in a while, I'll give a little note about how I felt about something like Killers of the Flower Moon movie of the year 2023. And then for Madam Webb, I'm going to say Dakota Johnson, 4.5 star performance in a three and a half star movie. And I think a three and a half star movie, this is like one of the most charming superhero movies I've watched in a while because it feels kind of small again. Like it feels quaint again almost. And this is like, to me, an ideal future of superhero movies is that they would pair back to being like 30 to 60 million dollars, that they would just become like mid-budget movies that get back to like the pulp comic book feel of the 1990s like i want comic give me give me the shadow give me the phantom starring billy zane give me the schumacher batman like we've we've done the interconnected infinity universe that was like narratively audacious and like lasted 20 years but guess what guys we've hit peak superhero now that we're on the way down the hill let's go back to dick tracy Let's do that and let's let Madam Web be a sort of bar setter for how much we like how ambitious these movies are. Keep it local. Keep it fun. Um, and go watch Dakota Johnson in a big budget movie because I don't know. Have you really done that since the Fifty Shades franchise, um, a.k.a. the narrative, the press tour narrative of the century in which we all wondered if uh, Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan disliked each other so much or if they just hated doing those movies. An incredible time. An incredible time to be a Jezebel reader. Anyway, that's it. That's our show. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod or send us an email at feelingscene@maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter as Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. This show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.